And for me, that's where the questions around British identity really need to be refined. Because what does it mean to be British? Well, to be British, and I, I talked about this in the, the last publication that I wrote, to be British is to be diverse. So why are members of our community going through these tragedies and we're not helping them? Because they're not seen to be British enough. Hello, hello. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm not too bad. Thanks. Happy to be here. How are you doing, Tev? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to have you. I'm happy to have like a proper Liverpudlian on the podcast now. I think you're the first one. They don't come much more Liverpudlian than me, so we're good. That's great. I'm a massive, massive Liverpool fan. Big fan of football, big fan of Liverpool, so happy. That was that was a good start. That was a good start. The main thing people usually ask me is, are you a red or a blue? I was about to ask you that exact same question. So I'm guessing you're yeah, red. I'm definitely a red. Perfect. We're going to get on well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you for coming on. And um, just to start off with, um, for people who may not know who you are, do you mind giving us like a very brief introduction? Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is Rachel C. Boyle and I'm the Dean of the Carnegie School of Education at Leeds Beckett University. That's it. Perfect. Now, to begin with, I always like to take it back and just to start off with childhood, you know, childhood experiences and that kind of thing. And then we'll work through your life. With yourself, could you, um, to start off with, could you paint a picture as to what your upbringing was like growing up in Liverpool, particularly as a mixed race child growing up in Liverpool? Mm-hmm. I had a really interesting experience as a kid because it's not, it's not typical. It's also not what a lot of people expect a mixed race upbringing to be. So um, my dad's family are a mix of white, Bayesian and West African. And my mum's family are white British. So my mum and dad um, met and got married in 1970. Um, and they'd been married for 10 years before they had me and I'm the oldest. Um, and I grew up in a really stable household with two parents who were absolutely devoted to each other and indeed to to me and later my younger brother I've got a younger brother who's four years younger than me um we went to a very leafy middle class primary school um and then when we went on to secondary school things were a bit different because the school was just um put it this way we learned a lot about life at our secondary school um but in terms of growing up in this lovely leafy area and going to a, a gorgeous primary school, it all looked lovely, but we were we were part of a very, very small minority of kids who were not white. So we stood out like a sore thumb. So although on paper it looks lovely that I grew up in this nice area, actually being completely different within that space um, was really quite challenging. Secondary school was, was an incredibly challenging time in, in my life because of the racial abuse that I experienced every day. Um, a very racist school with kids from backgrounds that didn't respect or want to know what diversity was. So people like us were just, you know, inferior, if you like. Um, in school, teachers were not concerned with issues of race, racism or anything to do with that. So the name calling or 
Um, the trouble that we would have would largely be ignored. Any time we tried to um, report to teachers that we'd had anything negative said to us, we were treated like we were creating a fuss. Um, and it was largely swept under the carpet. So for me, growing up and being mixed race at home was a really strong place to come from. And then my schooling experience was incredibly tough because the the stability of home was not reflected in my experiences at school. We also were very lucky when we were kids to go to Barbados and to see where our great-grandfather came from many times. So I knew exactly where I came from. I knew exactly who I was. Um, and then that didn't really marry up with how people saw me in the outside world. Because to be this, this light, um, but also to be very confident and comfortable with my mixed race identity I think was quite unusual then we also spent a lot of time in New York as kids because my great-grandfather came from Barbados met my great-grandmother in Liverpool and they had two children two of uh, one of which was my granddad and then they emigrated to New York and had three more children there so all of my close close family live in New York City and still do to this day so for us to go to a family gathering was for us to get on a plane and, and go to New York. So my black identity was hugely influenced by my American experiences and going home to the Caribbean. So Barbados and New York have both been integral in terms of me forming my sense of self. Um, and I get, I get back to Barbados as often as I can. I've been there twice in the last six months. And for me, that's really important because it just brings me back, brings me back in alignment. So I guess growing up, was a very uh, mixed bag, mixed bag, really positive in terms of my family, but not necessarily positive in terms of my experiences in the outside world. I think I really came into my own when I got to university, really found out who I was, found my space to belong in terms of education. Um, so that was that was when it really began for me. That's really interesting. And as a, you know, being mixed race, um, it's, I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I suppose it's sort of like you, it might, it's very difficult, especially growing up back then, because it's like you mean you don't fit in with the, you're going to leafy suburb school and then you're one of the only non-white people going there. You're not fitting in there and you're getting racially abused. But at the same time, did you, well, I guess you had that, you developed that sense of identity from your family and traveling back and forth and all of that um, back then. But it's interesting, that kind of duality. Indeed. And, um the duality's always be. I mean, it's. I write about it a lot nowadays, but when I would associate with the black side of my family, they weren't in Liverpool. They were in New York, so I was. There was a disconnect in terms of of distance, and we used to write to each other. My cousins in in the states, um, we would write letters to each other. I sound really old now. I'm showing my age. Um, whereas now we just jump on and do something like this, or we'd FaceTime, or you know, it's we're we're all. Distance is not an issue these days, like it was when we were growing up. So my blackness was very American, very Americanized, if you like, because of that that side of the family. So I'd, I'd go to America and be beautifully accepted and have these fabulous experiences. And then I'd come back to Liverpool and it would just be like, oh, this doesn't quite fit in with, with what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. What's your happiest childhood memory and what makes it so special? Oh, wow. There's loads. I think we went to Barbados when I was five and we flew to New York first and met up with all of the family. And then 
from New York, we all flew to Barbados together. So we arrived en masse. And I remember being in the taxi from the airport and everybody pointing out sugar cane to me. And they made the taxi driver pull over and he got out and cut me some sugar cane and gave it to me and everybody taught me how to eat sugar cane. So that was, that was really prominent as a memory. And I think again, on that same trip, my great uncle from New York, my uncle Arnie had me in the sea collecting coral and explaining to me what coral was. And obviously there's a, you know, that Caribbean legend that the red spots on coral are, is pirate's blood. And for me as a five-year-old, that was the most fascinating thing in the world. Um, and I just remember being on the island with all my family and just, A, really enjoying it, but B, feeling really, really safe. So yeah, I'd, pro I'd probably say that. That's really cool. I did not know about that Caribbean legend. So Uncle Arnie taught me something there as well. <laughs> That's really cool. He'd love that. <laughs> and I want to talk about what the community was like growing up. Um, but in the light of, because, you know, I often hear from other people from Liverpool, not necessarily from talking to people in, like face to face, but just through interviews and that kind of thing, about people from Liverpool having that, that Liverpool sense of identity. In fact, a lot of people from Liverpool don't even see themselves as British. They'll see themselves as, I'm from Liverpool, first and foremost. And then maybe if you call yourself British, that's like an afterthought. Um, but it's that strong sense of community. So I want to talk about what the community was like growing up in Liverpool. And also, in the light of um, the, with the, I'm guessing when the Hillsborough disaster happened, you were probably a young child back then. I was six, so, yeah. So you were young back then when that happened. So talk about what the community was like, what the effect of that Hillsborough disaster was like on your community, on your family and on you personally as well. That's a really good question that nobody's ever asked me before um, regarding Hillsborough. I think... You're absolutely right. The sense of identity that comes from this city is stunning. It really, really is. Um, and although my school experience has was negative, nothing else has been negative in that way. So that we there's um, there's this phrase, the People's Republic of Liverpool. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people do consider themselves to be Scousers first and British second. And I think I would probably echo that. Because Liverpool was a port, I mean, the, you know, the port is still there now, but not functioning in the same way as it did historically. There was always a melting pot of races and ethnicities within the city. So there was this level of acceptance that predates the Windrush. So, for example, people think that black people only came to Britain with the Windrush in the 1950s. And however, Liverpool's black community, along with Bristol, are the two oldest black communities in the country. Now, within that, there's a real strength. And that, that, that level of acceptance across the city, in my experience, has always been there. And I, I mean, I work in Leeds currently. And although I am absolutely committed to my university and the role that I do, I'm not moving to Leeds. <laughs> I'm, sta I'm staying in Liverpool. And I'm not going to lie to you, Tevin, the commute is not pleasant but I'm not moving because I am significantly connected to this space and these people. If we talk about the Hillsborough disaster, that was an incredibly vivid time. As I say, I was only six, 
but I remember it happening. I can tell you exactly where I was and what I was doing when it was happening. And then I remember the days and the weeks and the months that followed. There was not one person in this city that you could speak to who hadn't been personally affected by the tragedy. It was somebody's son, it was somebody's brother, somebody's sister, you know, there was somebody there. And this city's never forgotten that. And I think the beauty of the city of Liverpool is that we don't forget what's happened to our own, and not necessarily in a negative way. Hillsborough was horrific. However, there is this sense of connection and bond amongst the Scouse community that will never, ever go away. And we've seen... So the different managers of Liverpool, for example, obviously there's, there's Kenny Dalglish, who is like the messiah. Mm. Um, but when Rafa Benitez came, the way he, he dealt with the Hillsborough families and everything, he was just completely embraced by the whole city. And Jürgen Klopp's done the same. So for us as a community, I think it's strengthened those bonds. It's strengthened a Liverpool identity. And then what happened with the Sun newspaper, and I shouldn't even say the word out loud, quite honestly, what happened after that, you cannot walk around Liverpool and find that newspaper anywhere. And if you are walking around Liverpool holding that newspaper, somebody will stop you and ask you why you've got it. So it, it, it's a total blackout from every corner of the city. And we're not just talking about Liverpool supporters now, we're talking about everybody because the lies they printed about the Liverpool fans will never be forgotten. So in terms of the impact on the community, it was there was a strengthening, there was a bringing together. And then these stories that are retold. So Jimmy McGovern, who's a good friend of my dad's, wrote the series Hillsborough a few years ago with the, with the families. And retelling that story strengthens the bond again so although it was absolutely heinous essentially what it did was bring a city together and anytime Hillsborough is mentioned everybody comes back together again um and I don't think you can it's not about us being Liverpoolians or you know Evertonians it's about us being from Liverpool being from a city where something happened to people within our community so I think you'd you'd struggle to find a better sense of community outside of the city, which is why I can't move to Leeds yet. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, for me, because I haven't, it's not, I wasn't necessarily born when it happened, but I read about the history and everything like that. Um, with all of the people that passed away and then somebody passed away, was it last year? I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, yep. The injury sustained yep. from the disaster back at, back in 89. So it's 97 people that have passed and how hundreds of other people mm -hmm. were injured at the time. And then how nobody was prosecuted for however many for decades until very recently now because of, it's, it's not even necessarily because, it's because of the people themselves are the ones pushing for it and saying this isn't fair, which is nuts. Mm -hmm. And you look at what happened recently with um, the, the Champions League final and then the French government was like blaming Liverpool fans again. You know, it's coming out that it wasn't Liverpool fans, it was just very bad mismanagement. And then you can even parallel that to... Uh, all these other kind of disasters that have happened in the UK. A recent one I can point to is the Grenfell disaster, where mm -hmm. uh, where people, how, I can't remember the exact number, but however many people have lost their lives in that. And again, it's the, the governments or the authorities in question are not really doing enough. And it's the people on the ground that are out here really pushing for justice, that are helping families and friends or whatnot. Like, I went there when, after the, a couple of days after the the disaster happened Grenfell and it was crazy the way I explained it, it was like literally like it was like it's like anarchy 
in a sense because there's there's no mm. there's no official figure whatsoever. There's no police. There's no fire men, fire women, whatever. There's nothing like that. It's literally the people, the community people who are around organizing everything on the ground. So you've got like heaps of donations and you've got some a person that says volunteer and they're just organizing that. Then you've got it was it was crazy. But we 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 have to ask why. So the victims of Hillsborough were demonized by the media. We then found out that wasn't true. The victims of Grenfell in some circumstances have absolutely been demonized in terms of immigration status and all of these other questions. So we're looking at working class people. We're also looking at people who are not white British. So therefore that narrative does not fit in with, okay, these are people we need to help. So, as you say, that the community are rebuilding themselves in those those days, those weeks, those months afterwards. And what what are the people in power doing? And for me, that's where the questions around British identity really need to be refined. Because what does it mean to be British? Well, to be British, and I, I talked about this in the the last publication that I wrote. To be British is to be diverse. So why are members of our community going through these tragedies? And we're not helping them because they're not seen to be British enough. You know, if you're a football fan and you're working class or you can't be British, if you're not white, then you can't be British. Now, that the whole thing in Paris, I know hundreds of people who were there who went to enjoy a football game peacefully and the way they were treated by the French police is unspeakable. Um, and one of my really good friends who spent a hell of a lot of money getting there said that she would never, ever return to Paris ever again after that experience. And we've got, to, we've got to say, we've got to ask the questions as to why. As you said earlier, what are people seeing that they are assimilating with who we are? And for me, that's where the real question sits. It's really interesting as well on um, Britishness and identity, because identity, being British, like you're saying, isn't necessarily being white. It's, it's a nationality. Um, I'm British, I was born here, and that's it's what I, I know, right? So that makes me British, doesn't it? Um, and even the language that's used is very, can be very, uh, what's the word? Not not good. Problematic. Very problematic, that's the word. Because the word, like, for example, immigrant, has become a tainted sort of term. We know what it means, but it's become tainted. But then we look at other uh, white immigrants, and then we call them expats, and it's just a different kind of energy. Um, that comes with it and I don't know if you remember in one of these maybe Metro I can't remember one of these newspapers uh, a few years back and I was talking about the migrants crossing the channel and it was referring to them as cockroaches and I was like whoa that's it's, it's, it's nuts the language in of itself can breed all sorts of identity mm -hmm. issues can breed all sorts of um, racist ideologies or whatnot and definitely needs to be changed language language is the root of all of this how we use it and language can be weaponized. So they can use a term to describe us. If they use it over and over again, it can become something else. So I remember when, for example, this is not a British situation, but it's an exact example. President Trump talked about coronavirus and the fact that he believed that it came from China and he kept saying China, 
over and over in one interview where he was, you know, stood at the, the lectern, he's being interviewed by the press. He kept saying China, China, coronavirus, China. And then if you looked at the newspapers in the following days, there was all of this stuff about China. And that language and how it's used then forms the foundation of the conversations that happen. So government rhetoric at the moment around decolonizing the curriculum and the government's objections to us approaching equality through education is demonizing the word decolonization. So decolonization is actually looking at the curriculum and identifying equal contributions from communities that led us to this day. So making sure the curriculum is balanced in terms of those historical narratives. Well, the way that the word is being used at the moment is like it's a bad thing, like it's something that's extreme, when actually it's for the good of the community. It's for us to all see ourselves reflected. But the use of the language has those negative connotations, and that is really dangerous. For sure. On this identity piece, so at the moment, you're a uh, race, racism, and uh, race, racism, ethnicity researcher. And, you know, you've spoken about your journey in terms of your identity where you're growing up and you're traveling back to New York and Barbados quite a lot. But mm -hmm. at school, you're receiving all sorts of racial abuse, especially in no, secondary school. So, And it's only in university where you started to really come into yourself. Can you talk a bit about your own journey with regards to finding that sense of identity and how that informs the, the work and the research that you do now? Mm-hmm. Um... My identity honestly underpins everything that I do. Um, I grew up really understanding the fact that I was mixed race. Um, we talked about it often. Um, we were taught at home that it was a really positive thing because we had the strength of both. Um, and that was repeated to us growing up. And as I said earlier, that message from the outside world was in school, for example, was not necessarily the same. However, when I got to university, so I went to university in 1999. Now, if you think about the timeline of this in terms of what's going on in wider society, so Stephen Lawrence was murdered in 1993. The McPherson inquiry, as a result of Stephen Lawrence's death, concluded in 1999. So I got to university at the point at which the McPherson inquiry had called the police institutionally racist, out there, straight up. The police are institutionally racist. This is the evidence. This is what happens. And this is the conclusion. So there was no arguing about that. The recommendations from the McPherson inquiry then bled into all public institutions. So education significantly. And I went to university then to train to be a teacher. The Labour government had been in power for two years at this point. And it was like this for us as 18, 19 year olds. It was like this new dawn. It was, okay, so now we can talk about it openly. This McPherson inquiry has been absolutely groundbreaking. As a result of that, we had the Race Relations Amendment Act in 2000 that then had a significant impact on how we were trained as teachers. So what we were gonna go into school to do. And for the first time ever at university, I had lecturers who wanted to talk about racial equality and wanted to listen to lived experience and bring research into it and give us readings that were about these topics. The only place I'd ever discussed this was at home. 
So for me to be in an academic space where this is okay, I know what I'm talking about here, it was like being set free. To then qualify to be a teacher in an era where we were tackling racial inequality through the curriculum was just phenomenal. And I felt like for the first time ever at university, I was seen and it was really, really powerful. So I wrote one of the, the last pieces of work I did before I left university. I wrote about the underachievement of black boys and I looked at achievement data and the reasons why. And there wasn't much knocking about then around this topic. And that, that's grown, obviously, over the years. We've got significant academics in Britain at the moment doing some epic work in this area. But at that time, there were only a handful and I received really good feedback for it. And I thought, right, okay, this is something I care about. This is something I am completely aligned with and I want to do something with it. So when I became a teacher, I taught in Heighton in Liverpool, which is the area where Anthony Walker was murdered. And again, a racially motivated murder. And that experience for me, again, everything I did with those kids in my class was underpinned by who Rachel Seaboyle was. This mixed race nature, this diverse nature of my background, I brought it into the classroom. So any kid that was taught by me in Heighton will tell you Rosa Parks was and can talk about Martin Luther King because we I placed it on the agenda and I I was in a really privileged position to be able to do that work with those kids, those families and that beautiful community that exists in that, that area. That's really, my, part of my heart is still in Heighton in Liverpool and I threaten at least once a week I'm going <laughs> back to school. Um, because it was a transformative experience. Then moving on to work in higher education and to start to do specific academic research in an ongoing way in this area has been absolutely phenomenal for me. Talking to, to groups of students who want to know what it means to be an anti-racist teacher, what does that mean? So we teach a lot of students who come from white backgrounds, who've never experienced racism, don't, you know, have no lived experience whatsoever, but want to make a difference in their classrooms. And our research underpins what, what they then do. So for me, if you cut me in half, my identity sits right down the centre of me. So first and foremost, I'm Rachel C. Boyle, a mixed race woman. Then I'm Rachel C. Boyle, a mixed race woman who's a dean of education. So for me, it's at the very, very top of my list of how I how I show up to the world. And I think it's really important as people that we have that alignment and that connection to something that we're passionate about and that our work reflects that because then you've no idea of the legacy that you're leaving if you, you approach something with, with such passion. So I am hugely proud of my, my heritage. And as I say, it absolutely forms the foundation of everything that I do. It's really interesting when you talk about that, especially after 1999 and the McPherson report came out and then you said that now from there onwards, people were more, now people asking, talking about race and education, that kind of thing. Because I feel like now, maybe it's just my experience, but I still feel like it's kind of a taboo topic to discuss. Maybe in school, I don't think we really spoke about it like that. No, no, we didn't. We never did really, actually. Even in the workplace, it's sometimes to be fair now after the black lives matter movement you see now it's becoming a bit more of a and black lives matter has been around for a long time but specifically after the george floyd murder it's become a bit more of like a more of a talking point but it's still a bit of a awkward taboo subject for people to bring up the the timeline of anti-racism is is fascinating you're absolutely right so 
The reason I talk about that period of time of being, of being at university, if I think about it now, I feel like I've made it up. I feel like it never really happened because I went and I qualified in 2003 and I taught in schools until 2010. Now in 2010, we had a coalition government. And if we look at what happened with political policy at that point, there was a neutralizing of any race related language in public policy. And one of the examples of this is that the Equality Act in 2010 got rid of the Race Relations Act that came before it. So the Equality Act scooped up all of the protected characteristics such as disability, race, etc., etc., and put them under one umbrella act. So therefore you're diluting it. You're saying that race isn't a problem. You're saying that race is the same as gender and disability. And it isn't. These are all very, very separate issues. But the coalition government put it all together. Then if we fast forward to 2012, another example of this is that when you qualify to be a teacher, you have to demonstrate that you've achieved what's called the teacher's standards. And in 2012, a new version of the teacher standards was produced where all reference to race was removed. So universities then didn't have to do anything with race when they're training teachers. Within the Ofsted framework, so the people that come out and inspect universities and schools, again, the language was removed. So this subliminal messaging is, okay, it was really important when the McPherson inquiry concluded, the recommendations were made, we all jumped on them. But gradually, chip, chip, chip away, we're whitewashing it, we're getting rid of it. So then, if you think about what then happened with George Floyd, wham, bam, it's right back on the world's agenda and everybody's talking about it again. So it sort of peaks and troughs and I'm getting old enough now to be able to understand what my dad and the older members of my family talk about. So all the family in the States, for example, my family in New York were all involved in the civil rights movement. They went on the Million Man March to Washington. And the oldest member of our family, my Auntie Gladys, is in her 90s now. And when George Floyd happened, she wept and said, we went through this in the 60s. This is what we marched for. Why is this happening again? And it's almost like public consciousness is raised, quashed, raised, quashed. Now, in critical race theory, which we're not allowed to talk about in Britain, if you listen to the government rhetoric, critical race theory describes the fact that any racial advancement is always clawed back. And that's essentially what what you can see if you think about the timeline we've just discussed there. So where we are currently, George Floyd has happened, Black Lives Matter placed it back on the agenda. But what's happening with the government currently is that they're trying to move remove everything again. So universities are being monitored in terms of what they do with critical race theory. They're being monitored in terms of what they do with racial equality. We had a, a communication from the university's minister in the last few weeks that was utterly astounding around what we should do with racial equality. So we're, we're in this phase again the pushing it back down phase. And I'm hoping that it won't be a tragedy that puts it right back on the agenda. But I think as we get older, Tevin, and as I say, I'm, I'm really feeling my age and I'm feeling what the older members of the family talk about is that it goes like this. And I think our job is to just keep fighting every single day, even in those little things that we do. 
And then it's clear with the, the clawing back of the, you know, whitewashing curriculum and that kind of thing in language, it's clear that it has a negative effect because we look at last year, I've forgotten the exact numbers, but from 2020 to 2021, um, the amount of hate crimes against any kind of ethnic group um, in the UK went up quite a lot. It wasn't even like, you know, anywhere close, it was quite a significant amount. Um, it went up last year. And it's like, wow, like what's what's happening here? It's not that long after the George Floyd murder as well, then all of a sudden you've got all sorts of racist people committing hate crimes all over the UK, which is nuts. And then it coincides with mm-hmm. what you're talking about in the schools and you know being policed on what you can and what you can't say. You're not really allowed to talk about these kind of issues in a way that you'd like to talk about them. Uh, what do you feel that we can do as a society or as educational institutions to... Um, to first of all, where do you think that kind of, that stems from? Like that, those people committing those kind of hate crimes. What can we do to, to help slow and eventually stop that? Mm-hmm. Again, really good question. I think, and again, I've written about this. We're in the perfect storm for racism still right now. We've got a right-leaning government in terms of those extreme views of members of the government. We've had Brexit, which gave the racists a voice in a way that I don't think we've we've seen before. So the racists were allowed to talk publicly about immigration and sending people home. We've then got Priti Patel at all opportunities deporting people and talking about why the immigration laws need to be strengthened. And then we've got the rise of social media where anybody can say anything and get away with it. So I can I speak from personal experience in terms of the the right wing coming after me on social media. Anytime I do anything on TV, I get some kind of horrific message from somebody telling me to come back to go back to where I came from. Um, and I come from Allerton in Liverpool and it's lovely. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll go back. I'm all right with it. Thanks. Uh, but those three things, the government, Brexit and social media create a perfect storm where people think they can say what they like. And then you can see these patterns on social media where people are whipping each other up into a frenzy. We saw it after the the penalty um, the penalty situation yeah, with the England squad last year. That was just unbelievable. But what I was really reassured about after that was the response of certain elements of the media in terms of fighting back. So, for example, where I live... In Liverpool, we get Granada Report, which is the ITV News in our region. They responded to this, to the the abuse of those three players, by reporting on all of the people fighting back to counteract that horrific language that was used against those young men. So they went straight to this mural of Marcus Rashford in Manchester where people were pinning up notes of hope and kids were drawing things and pinning... And it was just this stunning display of solidarity so instead of focusing on what was said Granada reports focused on the positive response of the community and I think in terms of how we begin to dismantle that element of society that's how we do it but I don't think all media outlets are as forward thinking as as ITV and I don't know that that was reflected across the country but that was that was certainly present here I think schools and universities particularly have a significant role to play in this. For example, 
It's no good just saying schools need to tackle the problem. Universities who train teachers, universities who train people to go and work in schools in, in those wider roles need to tackle it at the very, very beginning. So that at the point at which those people qualify to then go and be teachers, to then go and work with children and communities, they're already racially aware and ready to take on that challenge. It's then the job of schools to work with universities in partnership for us to develop an anti-racist curriculum. So I think it really begins there. Now I know that the, the impact that my little piece of work had in Heighton in Liverpool was conversations with kids and their families about issues of anti-racism. So for example, I used to play um, Billie Holiday to my class. We used to do this thing called the Big Write where the kids would have to write um, uninterrupted for about 40 minutes. And they, they like to have music on in the background. There was research that said classical music helps children write. And one particular class of mine heard me playing Billie Holiday at lunchtime. They'd all been on the yard and it had started to rain. And they'd been brought into the class and they didn't get wet. And I had Billie Holiday on and the kids were all like, Miss, what's this? And I said, oh, so I'll turn it off. And they were like, no, no, leave it on. And then when we did our big write again, one of the kids said, Miss, can we listen to Billie Holiday? And then it started a discussion around who Billie Holiday was and the, the context of Billie Holiday's music and what that meant. And this class of 10-year-olds were just fascinated. And then I had parents coming in on parents' evening saying to me, my son's asked for a Billie Holiday CD for Christmas. Is that down to you? And these little, you know, these white kids from Heighton had this awareness just because of a conversation with me. And it wasn't even a long conversation. It was a couple of minutes. Oh, this is Billie Holiday. She grew up in the South, you know. And that's, that's what starts the conversation. No child is born a racist, not one child. Young kids recognize race, they recognize difference, but they're not born racist. And it's the job of the schools and the communities that surround these kids to raise them in a way that is both tolerant and respectful. So I think we've all got a part to play in that. That's really good. I love that illustration. It's, such, it's, it's a simple illustration, but it shows how powerful that can be. Just simply just sort of like teaching and exposing these, these children to different cultures and to different things like that. And over time, you know, they learn, they, they learn to have like a, a, an appreciation um, for the diverse communities that we live in. These kids now are listening to music well beyond their years, Billy Holiday and stuff like that. But then they, they've gained an appreciation <laughs> for that and then what he stood for and all of that and i think that's um it's a simple but very powerful illustration as to what we can do to help um, combat some of these issues moving forward and on the topic of racism um that report i've forgotten the exact name of the report but the one that was released um i think it was last year that essentially said that there's no racism in the uk in the uk the sewell report the report yeah uh what are your thoughts on that there's no racism in the uk report um and on just on the findings of it in general how long have we got <laughs> i think i think i was horrified truly horrified by that report for a number of reasons it named people that they said had been consultants on the report that i've had actual live conversations with who had nothing to do with it who had one conversation with somebody and were then named and really didn't contribute to the findings. I think we've got to be really, really careful as to who we give these tasks to. 
so if you're a black person you you can speak for the community but you have to be aware that you don't represent everybody so if you are going to work on something like that you need to make sure that the research that you do in order to generate the conclusions is robust in depth and ethical and i mean they're the, they're the basic premises of any kind of of research generally but i think when you're in a position to produce a report that's going to have a significant impact on perception and on society you've got to make really sure that you're doing the best that you can you're not just doing it because somebody's asked you to do it you think it's going to be good for your profile which i think there was an element of that in it i think the findings were based on an incredibly small number of people i think the findings were based on a conservative steeped agenda and i think we had some racial gatekeepers trying to take over the narrative of the experiences of people of this country so for example they referred to the slave trade as the caribbean experience and that to me sounds like some kind of cruise ship that docks at barbados in bridgetown for three days that's exactly what i thought it sounds like a cruise ship and the slave trade there was nothing pleasant about the slave trade so to try and recategorize it and again it goes back to what we said about language before to couch it in language like that dulls the pain that is still caused by that today and it diminishes the experiences of both those people then and our communities now so i think the report was not worth the paper that it was written on and i was utterly utterly appalled by those people who were involved in it i've mentioned it in a couple of things that i've written and moving forward i'll probably never mention it again in any kind of positive way because it it was damaging it was damaging and we wrote an open letter a group of academics wrote an open letter in response to it so really you know leading academics in the field of race racism and ethnicity some of whom will hopefully appear on this podcast um we wrote just refuting the claims refuting the findings and providing counter narratives as to why they were wrong so yeah appalling tevin i cannot express in language strong enough to describe how i feel about it yeah, I think it's absolutely amazing. Well, not, not amazing in the good sense, just crazy. The fact that they've spoken to some people and not in any kind of a significant manner and included them as consultants. That that is that's that's crazy. That, that that's so nuts. I think. And um, yeah, I hear what you're saying about the racial gatekeepers as well, because there were some black people um, that were um, involved in the making of that report, but. I guess it kind of goes back to what I don't know how exactly they've come to come to conclusions what they've that they've come to, but it's like how they define racism, because we can look and see, <clears throat> um, you can look and see structurally and looking at different. There's all sorts of racial inequalities, whether it's black, whether it's Asian, or whatever across all of these different metrics. Um, and they're just clear to see. It's not like they're really close as well. They're they're quite you know some of them are quite significantly different. Um, then it's like okay, so we have got to dig into that and ask 
why is that happening? Not just turn away and say, no, there's no problem whatsoever. There's clearly a problem. Um, it's just now understanding why and then, un and then understanding what we can do to make things better. And to diminish some experiences, like you're saying, the Caribbean experience, that that's very, very, it's very disrespectful. Very, very disrespectful because, you, yeah, you can't, you can't, especially something as horrific as that and to diminish it, to sort of like, sort of like palm it away and be like, okay, that happened, cool, whatever. We're going to call it that reword it and then make it sound really nice and then let's move on I, th I think it's crazy i think the best way to move on if you want to move forward as society is to really acknowledge acknowledge there's a problem acknowledge what's happened hold your hands up keep it real because people love it and people are real and be like i know okay but let's move forward don't kind of diminish it and be like oh well yeah that happened mm -hmm. or oh no there's no issue let's just move forward no one no one likes a fake person but you know what i think I mean, as we as we wrap up this interview today, I think that the thing that we need to remember is to acknowledge something takes bravery. And there needs to be a level of bravery employed in the fight for racial equality from everybody. It's not to say that people are responsible for it. It's to say that, no, we know this has happened. As you say, this has absolutely happened. I acknowledge it. But that bit of it takes bravery. And I think there are areas of society that need to dig a little bit deeper to find that bravery so that we can use that as the starting point. I think there's beautiful work going on. And I'm hugely reassured by the generation at university now, or even the kids that aren't at university, that generation generally, I'm inspired by them. Because what I've seen over the last few years is a mobilising of those younger communities in a way that they will not sit and nod and say yes. They are like, hang on a minute, no, that's not right. And they they fight against it. So I'm hugely reassured. I watched the, the students graduate last week at our graduation ceremonies for Leeds Beckett. And I was filled with unadulterated hope. And I thought the power of what happens next absolutely lies in the hands of, of these young people. I think we could talk about that literally forever. Um, yeah, literally. But just to wrap up then, what's, what does the next chapter in your own story look like? Wow. Um, Tevin, these are really good questions. Um, I think I've just begun the new chapter, so I am, I'm only a month and a bit into my new role as Dean of Education at Leeds Beckett. Um, and that is the beginning of the new chapter. So shaping um, the experience that students have to make sure that it absolutely aligns with an anti-racist approach. Shaping the experience of our staff, our staff teams on all levels. So that reflects an anti-racist approach. And I think being in, in this role, I've got a real opportunity to affect some change. I think doing things like this and speaking publicly about ideas is great, but I think we need to all walk the walk in our everyday lives. I think there's a lot of people out there who've created really powerful profiles for themselves by talking about anti-racism. But if we drill down into, okay, so what did you do about that situation on that day with that person, then the story's quite different. So Maya Angelou talks about um, building your courage muscle a little bit on those little tasks every single day. And I think that's essentially what my next chapter is all about. Developing the courage muscle, building it up over the little things each day. So I think I think that's where 
that's where we're going to go. So more writing, hopefully. Um, I'm writing about the mixed race experience specifically at the moment. And for me, that's been a really, a really powerful experience for me as an academic, but also bringing not just my lived experience, but talking to other people about about theirs has been really interesting. So the next chapter is about the courage muscle and a bit more writing, I think. That's it. Perfect. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed you coming on here, Rachel. So, so good. <laughs> so, really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's all good. Anytime. Um, very quickly, if anybody wants to keep up to date with you and your work, how can they do that? Um, so I'm quite active on Twitter, Rachel Seaboyle one. Um, yeah, follow me on there and that would be a good way to connect. So thank you once again for coming to the podcast, Rachel. Really, really, really enjoyed having you here. Learned so much. I've got so much to take away. But for now, people, that's that. This is 1000 Voices. That was Rachel C. Boyle. And for now, we're out.